Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tamkin in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 24th of September. You're listening to the New Statesman World Review. Thank you for joining us. Emily, you're back from your holiday slash vacation. How was it? Back in a big way. It was great. Highly recommend the Outer Banks of North Carolina, although I have to say that it really gave me an appreciation for how the extent to which people in D.C. are wearing masks and taking the pandemic seriously, because at least where I was, nobody was wearing masks outside. You know, people were full indoor dining. I, I don't want to suggest that these two are related, but I saw many, many more Trump signs and flags than I, than I do here in the nation's capital. How are things in my absence? We just about survived, but very pleased <laughs> to have you back. And not least, as this week we are finally doing the long-promised slash threatened You Ask Us mega episode of World Review. We've been storing up questions that we haven't got to during the regular episodes over the past months and also took another generous call for questions in the past week. And so we've got a lot to get through. And I'm also very pleased to say that joining us to help us do so is India. Hi, India. Hello. And Ido. Hi, Ido. Hello, again. <laughs> okay, so before we start, let's briefly run through our moments of the past week. Emily, do you want to kick us off? I do. My moment of the past week is the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She died on Friday night at the age of 87 of complications with pancreatic cancer. To me, one of the real tragedies of this is that we can't, you know, she was this giant of gender equality and equality more broadly and of the legal field. And her death and life has, has just, it was immediately consumed by, rightly, but it was immediately consumed, or understandably, I guess I should say, by the um, political brouhaha that's going to follow, despite the fact that they did not give President Barack Obama's justice a hearing in his last year, even though we're 40 some days to go to the election. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that he and his fellow Republican senators will give Trump's nominee a vote. Trump and Pence want to rush this through because they are saying that if the election goes to the Supreme Court, they want nine judges on it. Specifically, they want a judge who they have just put on on the bench. So we are in for a, a political fight at a time that's already like fraught with political fights. So we will be following that story. Much to read on our US hub, The New Statesman, and we will be continuing to cover it here at The New Statesman and on the podcast. Jeremy, what's your moment of the week? My moment that I think is most significant was this past Tuesday, the 22nd of September, when in his virtual speech to the UN General Assembly, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced that China would be aiming to go carbon neutral 
by 2060. So as discussed extensively on last week's episode, this is obviously a huge subject and a a big step forward that China has made this commitment. So some positive news, although obviously a complicated story. India, what's your moment of the week? So my moment is that last week, Israel became the first country in the world to announce a second nationwide lockdown in light of COVID-19. And this week has seen the government tighten those restrictions further. And particularly interesting is the way they're tightening them regarding the two very contentious issues of access to synagogues on the one hand, and the freedom to protest on the other, and the groups involved who care about those two separate things. It's highlighting a lot of tensions between different communities. And Ido, what is your moment of the week? I'm back on the podcast, which means I'm talking about Belarus again. (laughs) My moment of the week was Lukashenko's uh, secret inauguration in Minsk. He closed off swathes of central Minsk and, and inaugurated himself president after last month's disputed presidential election. And obviously when you win 80% of the vote, then you need to shut off the areas around your inauguration to protect yourself from the hordes of admiring voters. (laughs) Indeed. And so with that, it's time for a section (laughs) that we like to call... Come on, Emily. You ask us. Wow. Did justice to it there. Nailed it. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, and with that, I'm going to, I'm going to actually start with you, Emily, with our first question, which I think came in in the last couple of days, which is, if Trump loses, who is the most likely to be the Republican candidate in 2024? First of all, I think if Trump loses and and, and leaves and is not, a, <laughs> if we don't have a continuation, not a transfer, as he suggested last night, I think Trump himself could be a candidate, first of all. Second of all, I think that we have kind of maybe three groups. There are people who have served in the Trump administration who have not tried to distance themselves from Trump, but have tried to make themselves seem like maybe more traditional, quote unquote, respectable politicians. So former UN ambassador Nikki Haley is absolutely an example of that. I think Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who this week, ethics, laws be damned, gave a speech on foreign policy in the swing state of Wisconsin. I think that you have senators who are not in the Trump administration, but have have found ways to work with it. So for example, Tim Scott of South Carolina, he is the one black Republican senator, and he spoke at the RNC and again showed you know, it kind of tried to put a face to this like more moderate Republican Party, but ultimately was still speaking for Trump. Another example of that kind of on the other end of this portion of the political spectrum is someone like Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas. He wrote the New York Times column that basically said, send the military into the streets to (laughs) to quell protests against police brutality and state sanctioned violence against black people. I think that he thinks that he has a, a bright political future. And then I also think that we should be considering, since Trump himself was not a politician in the traditional sense, I think we should also be considering figures like Fox News' Tucker Carlson, who, you know, is is out on TV pushing that. Uh, to give you an example of just a quick example of, of Tucker Carlson, when these protests against police brutality were really at their peak, Sesame Street did a little segment where Elmo was talking to Elmo's dad about how racism is bad. And Tucker Carlson was like, you see that, kids? Elmo is saying that you're bad because you're racist. So that's the level of identity politics that we get from Tucker Carlson's show, which is immensely popular. And I think that we have reason to believe or fear or hope, depending on your political persuasion, that he could enter the, the political arena as Trump did. A name I notice you don't mention. Uh, what about Ivanka? I think probably not in 2024, but maybe. I think that she and her older brother, Donald Trump Jr., 
I mean, there's been a lot written about how they've kind of been jockeying to be the successor to the Trump family. I think she actually does not have the same political popularity that he does. Her kind of polished Upper East Side Trumpism it does less well with Trump voters than Don Jr.'s, you know, just completely like red meat for the base Trumpism. But I, yes, we should, I, if if Trump himself does not run again in 2024, yes, we should expect that at least one of the Trump adult children will will throw their hat into the ring. Okay, I think that's enough of, of 2024. Let's kick it to two other numbers, 71 and 60. So Jeremy, we're going we're gonna to give, give this question to you. It's about the new Japanese prime minister. The question is, uh, Yoshihida Suga is 71 years old. His cabinet has an average age of 60 and has two women. What are the chances for change in Japan today? Right. So the obvious comparison between Suga and his predecessor, Shinzo Abe, is is indeed very obvious. Abe dominated Japanese politics over the last decade, was a very charismatic leader, and set about the task of trying to revitalize and revive a country that has, has struggled with stagnation, demographic, economic, in all sorts of ways, over the period of the last, well, debatably three decades. And we can debate his results. He did have some success in some areas, not in others. But Suga really contrasts with that in that he was always Abe's backroom fixer. He's six years older even than Abe, who himself stood down for health reasons, uh, having just become the longest serving Japanese prime minister. And Unlike Abe, he doesn't really play the factional politics of the governing Liberal Democratic Party. And that, that's an important point as well, because you know Japan's politics is dominated by the LDP and its, its real political battles play out between the different factions. Suga doesn't have a strong base in any of those. So there's that. There's the fact that he's widely seen as a sort of caretaker character, a sort of interim leader, someone to sort of, to sort of guide Japan and the party from the the fireworks of the Abe era into something else. And then, as our questioner says, there's simply the fact that his his cabinet is very old, it's dominated by veterans of the Abe era and has only two, two women. So not much chance for change there. But I think you'd caveat that by saying it's definitely worth watching this space in the sense that, well, first of all, maybe Suga will surprise everyone. It doesn't look like it, but maybe he will. But also just I think the political timetable gives us reason to think think again about that. You know, elections are due by September next year, so September 2021. And it's not taken as read that Suga will lead the LDP into those elections you know, there are younger, more dynamic characters lurking in the wings who, who chose, in many cases, chose not to challenge for the leadership now, but might be willing to step forward and challenge him for it ahead of those elections. There are figures like Abe's former foreign minister, Taro Kono, and also, interestingly, Tomimi Inada, who was a former defence minister and a rare, prominent woman in Japanese politics. And she too is one to watch because she's been leading a lot of the criticism of the fact that Suga's cabinet is so women-dominated. I mean, Japan performs very badly generally on measures of gender equality. And one of the, the kind of pieces of unfinished business of the Abe era was to do things like improve the, the rate of women's participation in the labor market. Only mixed success, I think it's fair to say, fairly generously about that. But Inada, who, who also, by the way, is a kind of flag bearer for the nationalist wing of the LDP, she's flirted with sort of opinions about Japanese 20th century history that, uh, that were until recently uh, taboos, has also set herself against the kind of male domination of the current cabinet. She criticised Suga about this and is kind of leading a campaign for the party to change its ways. So that, that could also herald a form of change in the next year or so. So I'd say don't expect anything drastic under Suga unless he surprises us all, but change could be afoot in the, in, the, in the medium term in Japan. So that's that question. Turning from Japan to 
Taiwan. And we have a question that also came in recently about someone asked straightforwardly, should my friends in Taiwan be worried? Presumably in reference to China's increasingly aggressive behavior and rhetoric towards Taiwan. India, would you like to take that for us? Yes. So in one sense, the answer is is, is kind of no. Taiwan is actually somewhere that Hong Kongers who are increasingly fearing persecution from the Chinese government, especially those who've been involved in the protests there. So they're actually fleeing to Taiwan right now or trying to and being interrupted in boats. And also the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, is committed to engaging engaging with China, but without kind of acknowledging China's dream of like its one China policy. But in another sense, the tensions, the military tensions that have been ongoing for so long between the two governments are very much still there. And Taiwan says China has carried out large scale air and naval exercises in its defensive zones. And yeah, that's becoming increasingly worrying. I mean, I, I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, one thought that occurs to me that I suppose would perhaps reassure me if I was one of our our questioner or her or his friends in Taiwan is the kind of the sense, I don't know what you think about this, India, of international opinion, particularly in the sort of Indo-Pacific region, rallying to the support of Taiwan. I mean, you know, we, we, we ourselves at the New Statesman have covered a lot shifting international opinion about China in the last months, given it's kind of, it's, it's first of all, the pandemic, and secondly, it's kind of belligerent tone. And I don't know, just, just sort of watching things from, from here it, in Berlin, it's, it's striking how, how open, for example, countries like Japan under Abe, but also, you know, Australia, India, the US, other players in this kind of, this growing alliance of sort of China sceptic powers in that region have been in, in their sort of support for Taiwan. Yes, absolutely. I think just today at the UN General Assembly, like a group, that group of nations basically got together and said, we support Taiwan. Right. It also has the steadfast support of President Trump as well, which is incredibly important. And there's debate about what role the pandemic will play in in kind of encouraging or discouraging any conflict. On the one hand, China seems to have used the opportunity to take more action in Hong Kong while the world's attention is is elsewhere and focused on internal troubles. But on the other hand, there's actually a likelihood that it wouldn't consider invading Taiwan during a pandemic just because there's so much uncertainty surrounding its own economic kind of present and, and outlook. And, and briefly, I mean, you, you were living in Hong Kong until earlier this year and have covered the, the protest movement for us. I mean, do you get a sense that Hong Kong protesters, Hong Kong pro-democracy campaigners still see Taiwan as a sort of safe haven? Because, because as, as you've written, a sizable number have moved to Taiwan out of concern at the, the crackdown in, in Hong Kong itself. Does, does, it, does it remain that sort of guarantee of security for them? Yes, it's been really fascinating seeing how generous Taiwan has been in, in in opening its doors to the people of Hong Kong. And I definitely think that seems to be just ever tightening that, that alliance. So yes, I do think they see it as a safe haven for now. Our next question jumps around geographically, although I think thematically there is some, some continuation. It is... Will the protests in Belarus achieve lasting change? Ido, we will, we will give this one to you. So this is a really interesting question. And as regular listeners will know, this story has been going on for a while since early August. And there have been weekly protests against the blatantly rigged election in August against President Lukashenko, who 
re-inaugurated himself this week. The authorities and the protesters seem to have sort of fallen into a kind of stalemate where every week there are protests and they're mostly fairly peaceful, but, you know, Lukashenko doesn't go anywhere and there haven't been mass defections from the security forces, which might have affected Lukashenko's position much more than he is at present. But as as uh, Felix Lys and I wrote before the election, the election in air quotes, the real danger for Lukashenko is that this has permanently dented his aura of kind of infallibility and invulnerability because he can't claim any kind of popular legitimacy or popular support. What, what he can claim is the support of the security forces and control of the state apparatus that allows him to repress dissent. He can't, he can't claim any kind of popular legitimacy. And that has dented his rule. And so even if he does manage to cling on, it's fairly difficult to see things continuing as they have for the previous 26 years since he came to power. On some level, things will have to change, whether that be planning for a transfer of power or constitutional reform, which might bring the country more integrated in with with Russia, within the union states or something like that, because it's it's very difficult to see how it can be business as usual from now on. So I think one follow-up to that is that I think that, and you know this as a fellow watcher of this region that I think, or observer of this region, I guess, you know, so often there will be a protest movement or an inspirational leader or or something, and people will tell themselves that this is it, things are going to change, they can't possibly continue like this, not not now that the people have taken to the streets, not now that there's this charismatic leader, not now that something, right? And then it does continue on, you know, maybe worse, maybe without the same confidence in the government, but it continues. So could you speak a bit about why you think that will not happen in Belarus? Is it just loss of popular confidence? Is it what makes you think that this will be different than protests in, you know, for example, in Russia or even in Central and Eastern Europe? Why will Lukashenko be the one who's forced to change? So the big difference, I think, between Belarus and Russia is, as you well know, probably better than anyone, vote rigging in Belarus is just made up numbers, like they're invented. They have mm-hmm. no relation to ballots cast whatsoever. It's just name numbers literally scribbled scribbled out of nowhere. There is vote rigging and ballot stuffing in Russia, but it's kind of plus 10% for, for United Russia. There is still a huge base of popular legitimacy. And like in a fair election, Putin would probably win. And so that I think that's the big difference. When, when there are big protest movements against Russia, uh, against Putin in Russia, he still genuinely has a big sort of base of support. And I don't think possibly you disagree, but I don't think that's been evidenced to the same degree in Belarus. And so I think the dynamics of how this will play out are slightly different. With that, um, Emily, I'm going to turn it back to you with a question also on that part of the world. So tell us, in, in a bipolar world, what is Russia's role? Is it China's sidekick or does it have some sort of independent identity? I think that Russia would would push back on the terms of this question. And what I mean by that is very often you hear Russian officials say, this is not a bipolar world. The US wants this to be a unipolar or a bipolar world, but this is a multipolar world. And the reason that they say that is that they, i.e. Russia, believe that they are big enough and important enough to be a serious player in their own right. I do not think that they want to think of themselves as China's sidekick. However, they have made choices that and align themselves very closely with China, that having that independent identity and, and flexing those independent muscles becomes more difficult. I do think, though, that there are certain places to watch for tension within the Russia-China relationship. One is India, the country, not our, our podcast guest, because 
the Soviet Union and India and now Russia and India have this very close relationship. It's also a very important defense relationship for both countries, for Russia exports and India imports. And as China and India have this, you know, in te- increasingly tense relationship on the border, Russia may be forced to pick a side that it, it doesn't want to pick or maybe to stand up to China in a way that it previously has not done. I think another extremely important one to watch for this is Central Asia. Traditionally, this was Russia or the Soviet Union's domain, and they were more influential. China is increasingly influential in that region. And I think while in some parts of the world, namely like the Indian Ocean or, you know, Russia really doesn't like the concept of the Indo-Pacific and they, Russian officials, kind of de facto officials will come to Delhi and say, well, you're leaving, you know, you're leaving Russia out of the Indo-Pacific concept. This should really be a Eurasian concept. Where they do not have a problem pushing back on Chinese influence is in Central Asia. So yes, Russia often ends up acting like a Chinese sidekick, but I think they're quite aware of that. They're aware of the fact that they don't just want to be second fiddle. It's part of the reason that the India relationship is so important to them because they, you know, India doesn't just want to be sidekick to the US and Russia doesn't want to be just a sidekick to China. I think Russia is well aware of its role in the world. And I do think that to say like, oh, it's just China and Russia ignores both history and the present geopolitical realities. Our next question is on Germany. So I'll answer it. No, just kidding. Jeremy, this one's for you. What did Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union speech tell us about the future of the EU? This question comes to us from Alex. Thank you for your question, Alex. And I think broadly speaking, so this was Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, gave her speech um, on the uh, her sort of annual or the commission president's annual speech to the European Parliament, summing up events to date and looking ahead to the next year. It's been a feature of the EU's calendar for, for 10 years and is seen as part of the kind of the shift, particularly on the part of the EU commission towards a slightly more political role. So it's good to kind of understand it in that in that context. I think it spoke to a sort of a very, very qualified confidence about how the past months have gone. I mean, you I mentioned this point a couple of times on the podcast before, but you only have to go back to the early part of the pandemic as it was arriving in Europe to have sort of seen the next months as potentially being the kind of the downfall of the EU. You know, the EU was not coordinating health responses well. Italy felt completely abandoned as the first country to be badly hit by the pandemic. You know, we were talking about China. China's efforts to sort of sell itself as Italy's real friend were genuinely worrying people in strategic circles. And there was just this sense that, you know, the union was being put to the test and it was failing that test. And then you look at what happened since then, and Ursula von der Leyen kind of walked people through the the kind of the subsequent events. You know, the EU did in the end play a role in helping to, for example, move people who were stranded in one part of the continent back to their home countries. It helped get the discussion going on a kind of on, on common support for a vaccine um, or, or attempts to find a vaccine. And of course, most prominently, it brokered this historic 750 billion euro recovery deal, which, while imperfect, as practically everything about the European project almost inevitably is, does at least put a floor under employment and consumption in the 27 states of the EU and, and, so, and so has helped to support the European economy. So there is a sense that Europe sort of passed its test and, and, and von der Leyen sort of, sort of told that story. And she told a kind of a decent story, I suppose, about, about the sort of role that Europe should be playing in, in such crises and in general in the future. And she said, I think the phrase was, we want change to happen by design and not by disaster or diktat, which I suppose is a sort of argument about a kind of 
pooled multilateral sovereignty where you say we don't in in a kind of turbulent world you can have change forced upon you by natural disasters like the pandemic or by diktat in the sense of you essentially get pushed pushed into doing something you don't want by a larger power, I guess a reference to the likes of China or maybe even Trump's US. So I think that was a decent argument. It wasn't the most uplifting piece of rhetoric. These things rarely are. They always are a bit of a shopping list. And I suppose that was the case this time. But there were some there were some credible commitments to what the EU could be doing next, you know, a health union following on from the pandemic. So, you know, integrating biosciences and so forth, and indeed health services. As mentioned before on the podcast, there's new ambition on greenhouse gas cuts. The EU now wants to reduce those by 55% by 2030. And she talked about things like green bonds that can be used to get there and sort of new rules on the digital economy. I have to say that those strengths do sort of speak to the classic strengths of the EU. So so these are, sometimes it's called as more sort of herbivorous priorities. So, you know, managing the digital economy, the environment, health. I mean, these are, these are not necessarily the toughest tests of a big international geopolitical player as the EU claims to be. And indeed, foreign policy was a weak point of her speech, I think, and is a weak point of the EU generally. So I'd say, yeah, it was, it's told, told us that the EU feels that it's come through the crisis well, that there are obvious ways, sort of next steps forward. But it doesn't, I think, by any stretch of the imagination, suggest that the next months and years will be easy for the EU. These things never are. And now, moving around the globe, Ido, we will have you take a stab at this one. The question is, will South Africa lose patience with Zimbabwe's government? So this is a really interesting question, and it's referring to a piece that I wrote three weeks ago talking about tensions between South Africa and Zimbabwe, particularly because Zimbabwe has a long-standing economic and social and political crisis, which is, is ongoing and shows really no signs of abating. And there were protests this summer that were repressed very harshly by the Zimbabwean government, which arrested uh, certain opposition MPs, a Brooker Prize winning author or Brooker nominee author, and a journalist who um, had reported on corruption. So Zimbabwe is in a much worse shape than South Africa, but the two countries are neighbours. So one thing that came across during my reporting for this piece was that stability in Zimbabwe is a kind of internal issue for South Africa because the border between the countries is so porous and South Africa is a much more stable country. And so there are anywhere up to 5 million uh, Zimbabweans in South Africa who have migrated because uh, the conditions in Zimbabwe are so bad. And so South Africa started putting pressure on the current president who replaced Robert Mugabe three years ago to start implementing reforms. And those are promises which really have not been fulfilled. And so, yes, uh, South Africa is starting to lose patience with with Zimbabwe. And it has a fair amount of leverage over Zimbabwe. So I think a third of of Zimbabwe's imports come by South Africa. There are also close ideological links between the two parties. But how effective that can be in pressuring the governing party of Zimbabwe, ZANU-PF, to implement reform and probably, you know, loosen its hold on power because it holds power through dictatorship remains to be seen. Our next question is for you, India. Um, Given the ongoing, our questioner uses the term genocide, and I should just add that there is a lot of debate in legal circles about whether genocide is is, is, is the right term. Indeed, I would recommend Ido's interview with the legal expert Philippe Sands on this very question. Given the ongoing genocide against the Uyghurs, why isn't there a push for a boycott of Chinese goods similar to the anti-apartheid movement? India, what do you think? 
I thought this was, again, a really interesting question. Interestingly, in India, there was a, there is a big push for a boycott of Chinese goods already, and that really kicked off in July following the clashes in the Himalayas over the Indian-Chinese border. But it's proved so hard, partly because so many goods can be traced to Chinese factories. A report came out even showing, like, uh, suggesting companies like Apple and Nike and Volkswagen components of their products even can be traced to factories which do use forced labor. So they're just so kind of omnipresent these products it's hard to avoid them and b it's it's expensive to replace chinese products in a lot of cases and so yeah even india has been really struggling to do that other reasons might include the fact that many muslim majority countries are now part of beijing's belt and road initiative Mm -hmm. uh, in which china provides development funds and infrastructure to these countries and so there's there's an economic fear there about essentially losing access, potentially using access to the world's second largest economy. But that said, more more activists and politicians in those countries are starting to speak out. So maybe we will see a change. It's a really interesting country. And of course, I mean, I suppose I wonder what role consumer pressure will, there will play. So simply pressure from below. I mean, I, I noticed last week that the clothing giant H&M dropped links with the supplier over alleged links to Uyghur forced labour. So it might be interesting to see if if we get more of that. Yes, it will. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. It is now time for our rapid fire, aka quick fire round, where everybody... You have to say the answer to this question in just one to two sentences. Keep it tight and quick because it's quick fire, not slow fire. Ito, first question is to you. Will Macron win re-election in 2022? Quite possibly, but I would say watch who the candidate of the right is and especially watch how strong the Greens perform because how they perform could really affect the kind of centrist, uh, moderate vote. India, a quick fire question for you. Will the world hit the 1.5 degree temperature change target in the Paris climate deal? So tentatively, maybe because of what China promised this week. And if Biden is elected and follows through with his promises, then scientists are saying that would get the world two thirds of the way there, which is incredibly promising. But I don't want to speak too soon. Jeremy, a quick fire question for you. Why is the UK playing so little role in the East Mediterranean dispute between Turkey, Greece and Cyprus? And what does this say about the condition of British foreign policy? I can answer that quite quickly by just saying Brexit. I mean, that would oversimplify, but essentially the UK hasn't been involved in the main European discussions about how to broker some sort of reconciliation between Greece and Turkey, although it has to be said that the EU is itself very divided on this matter. The UK has broadly fallen in behind Germany's attempts to mediate between the two. But it is, I think, part of a a sign that the UK has not been involved in many of the big European sort of geopolitical questions of recent months and years since the vote. I was talking to a foreign policy expert here recently who was saying of the UK and the Balkans, it's like they've disappeared, that the the, the diplomats, the UK diplomats are so focused on things like trade deals and so forth that they're they're just not very present in the big political discussions. And I expect that's the case in the Eastern Mediterranean as well. So with that, one final quickfire question to you, Emily, and it's a big one. Will the US be able to inaugurate a president by January? 
I think the U.S. will inaugurate a president in January, but but how that president comes to power, how the votes are counted, whose whose votes get counted, that all still remains to be seen, and that to me is far more concerning than whether or not there is an inauguration ceremony in late January. And I believe we also got a bonus question. Can I read the bonus question? Go on. Okay, our bonus question is super fast drum roll. Can you ask Ido Vok if he wants to go on a date with me? Ido, we'll let you take a stab at this one. And you do have to require, reply to this very briefly. <laughs> you, you would way more than two sentences. I've been thinking all day about how to, how to respond to this. I genuinely have no idea. So to err on the side of caution at the risk of losing a reader, no. <laughs> well, that was a definitive answer. But I'd like to say thank you very much to all of our listeners for sending in their You Ask Us questions over the past months and indeed over the past week for this episode. We hope that you our questions, our answers shed some light on those subjects and do keep them coming in over the next weeks youaskus.co.uk so that leaves us with our moments of the week next week normally i would throw it to somebody else but i'm going to be extremely american and selfish about this and go first and say that i am i don't know that looking forward to is the right phrase but i will be watching because it is my job the first presidential debate it's next tuesday evening it will be on fox news segments include one on race and violence in the cities. So I I would also mention that we will be live blogging that on our US hub. If you want to watch and see what we're saying or don't want to watch and want us to just let you know what you need to know, that will be on our US hub next Tuesday night. And that's newstatesman.com slash US hyphen election hyphen 2020, where you will get that live blogging and all of our other US election coverage data charts and much more. And the next day, so that's next Wednesday, we will have a special bonus episode in which Jeremy and I will discuss the debate that took place the night before. So we encourage you all to look out and tune in for that. Jeremy, what is your what will you be looking for in the next week? Well, just continuing on the on the on the theme about Japan's future, I will be it may not be the most significant and certainly perhaps not as hopefully not as dramatic as the US TV debate, but I'll be paying attention to the visit to uh, Germany and France next week of Japan's new foreign minister, Toshimitsu Motegi, who will be visiting the two countries. And it's interesting because I think those two are not Japan's most important two allies, it has to be said. But there are some interesting shifts afoot. I mean, both Germany and France have recently been publishing strategies for the Indo-Pacific, which you would not have expected sort of big continental countries, the continental European countries to do so prominently until recently. And I think that just speaks to the fact that, you know, your big European countries do recognize that the big the big arena for the next decades is going to be the Indo-Pacific space. And, and I think Japan is recognizing that by sending its new foreign minister to continental Europe so soon after the establishment of the new government. So I think that's going to be interesting to watch. India, what will you be looking ahead to next week? So mine is also TV related, following on from Emily's, but a very different kind of TV. So it's the release actually in UK cinemas on Monday and then on Netflix the following Sunday of David Attenborough's uh, latest offering, A Life on Our Planet. And it's looking back at his 94 years on Earth and uh, and appealing for people to kind of really appreciate the natural world and, and do what they can to save it. That sounds amazing. Thank you for uh, letting us know about this. Ido, what will you be on the lookout for in the week ahead? Uh, I'll be looking at the EU trying to drum up support for its new perhaps on migration and asylum. It will particularly be trying to get smaller countries and countries 
in Eastern Europe to support its new pact. And both both types of countries have shown themselves rather skeptical. So we'll see what happens. Okay. All that remains now is to thank Ido and India for joining us for this uh, very special whole squad You Ask Us Roundup episode. India and Ido, thank you both so much. Oh, thank, thank you. you. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review and other recent episodes, please do spread the word, tell your friends, families, colleagues, etc. about it. And if you particularly like it, then do leave us a review. That is always appreciated. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, which you can find at newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.